This is a podcast by The Straits Times and Money FM 89.3. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Speaking of Asia podcast by The Straits Times. This is Ravi Velour, and I'm an associate editor and Asia columnist for the paper. This series of podcasts focuses on Asian issues and distills experience from four decades of covering the continent. In this month's podcast, which is being recorded on the 8th of November, I have a most interesting person to speak on a subject that often touches raw nerves, but yet is a vital one that needs close examination. I'm talking of the sensitive issue of migration, or rather specifically, human migration. Dr. Parakana, who is here with me today, is a man of many accomplishments. He's a scholar, global thinker, and the author of several books. His experience varies from working at the World Economic Forum to advising the U.S. Special Operations in the Middle East. And it seems to me, reading his many books, that there is not a place he has not traveled to. I invited him on this podcast to discuss his latest book, and it is called Move, The Forces Uprooting Us. The book's central point is that human mobility is destiny. It is a theme that I've thought about myself. I once bought a train ticket in Sydney from a man of Sri Lankan descent, and the customs officer at the airport turned out to be Vietnamese. Many years ago, in the tiny Midwestern American city of Lincoln, Nebraska, I found that the most popular restaurant was run by a Bhutanese. And the last time I went to Tokyo at Narita Airport, the baggage handler who helped with my luggage for the bus ride into town was a Nepalese, and yet, his mannerisms were so Japanese. In Parma, Italy, I found turbaned Sikhs serenely riding bicycles just like they may do so at home in rural Punjab. And many small shops in Italy, mama shops as they are known here in Southeast Asia, were run by Bangladeshis. And here in Singapore, as you know, Changi Business Park has begun to be called, not always kindly if I may say so, as Chennai Business Park, because of the high concentration of Indian techies working there. Parag is just the right person to discuss this mega trend. He describes himself as an American nation, but he has lived, studied, and worked in at least three continents, and he is comfortable everywhere. For some years now, he has made Singapore his home. Parag, it is a pleasure to have you on the Speaking of Asia podcast, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much, Ravi. It's great to join you. Could I begin by asking you to take a minute or two to describe the main themes in your book, Move, so that uh, listeners can hear it from you directly rather than from me? Absolutely. Well, thank you again for having me on. Well, let's begin by asking you to imagine a world in which climate change is having a devastating impact in many parts of the world far faster than we could imagine. Imagine also that in that world, the population of the human species is actually declining rather than growing at an exponential rate the way that it was in the 20th century. And now imagine that the typical human being is not a two-income parent, a household, a husband and wife with two children living in a suburb, but rather that your typical human being is actually young, has no children, is relatively poor, and is struggling in a city. 
Well, that's not an imaginary world, Ravi. That's not the world of 2030 or 2040. That's the world of 2020. That's where we are right now as a human species. And so it's no surprise, perhaps, that people are on the move as never before in history. And that if they're not moving, they're certainly yearning to move. And if you look back historically, over the last 100,000 years, we have been a nomadic species. We are nomadic by nature. Only in the last couple of hundred years have many of us been fortunate enough to settle into a sedentary industrial lifestyle, if you will, full of modern conveniences and not needing to relocate. But it's certainly intimately a part of our history, and I argue a very significant part of our future, to have to move and perhaps move and move and move again in response to various circumstances. Climate change only being, if you will, the newest or most significant new cause of migration. But historically, looking just at perhaps at the centuries that we're most familiar with, the 19th and 20th centuries, migration was driven by economic factors like labor shortages and demographic imbalances, the gap between old and young, driven, of course, by politics, civil wars, genocides, expulsions, and other kinds of conflict. Now it's also driven by technological automation, of course, people being automated away from their jobs in factory towns and being forced to move, or being able to capitalize on digitization and remote work and being able to live wherever they want. So all of these forces cannot be treated in isolation. They actually influence each other. And all of them, every single one of these forces, Ravi, is in hyperdrive, absolute overdrive right now in the year 2020. So the greatest irony is that we find ourselves in a pandemic where most people have been locked down. But by the eve of the pandemic, we had reached an absolute record level of people crossing borders within a single year. We had reached an absolute record level of the number of people living outside of their country of origin. The pandemic, of course, has only very, very temporarily slowed this down. But all of these forces will drive us to move and to move again. And that's the point of departure for this book. Parag, if mobility is destiny, then we should be tracking where the migrants are heading and which countries are the most receptive to them. Where in Asia are the most dramatic changes taking place vis-a-vis migrants uh, as you see it? Well, there's two things in what you've just asked, and I think they're both extremely important. The first is that not only is it logical that we should be looking at the origin and destination countries globally, but also in an obvious corollary is how important that is for determining the winners and losers of the 21st century, because this is absolutely my fundamental argument in the book. If you want to know which societies will be the winners in this century, simply look at where young people are going. If a country is attracting young people, it is a winner. If it is not attracting young people, if it is a source of emigration, it is quite likely to be a loser. This would not have been a true statement in the 20th century, because in the 20th century, the world population was growing exponentially. But today, the world population is flat and fertility has collapsed. Therefore, every single human being, every single citizen that your country loses is no longer an asset to you. It's an asset to some other place who has gained a taxpayer, who has gained an entrepreneur, who has gained an innovator, who has gained some contributor to the real economy of that country. And you have lost that person. So we are in a zero-sum demographic world already today, right? One country's loss is another's gain. So who are the winners and losers in Asia? 
Well, first of all, Asia is extraordinarily important in this story because Asia is not only the largest share of the human population, it's also, uh, by extension, also the largest share of young people in the world. And indeed, this is one of the only regions where you still have high fertility or at least fertility that is not sub-replacement, of course, in countries of South Asia and Southeast Asia. So the future of humanity, as I say in the book, boils down to two words. Asian youth. Literally, Asian youth are the future of the human species because of the very, very low fertility in the entire Western world. Now, the only exception to that uh, statement is Africa, which also has high fertility, but Africans have far lower international mobility than Asians. Most Africans stay in Africa, do not leave Africa, and will perhaps never leave Africa. The same is not true of Asians. Asians have the largest diasporas in the entire world, whether it is the Chinese, the Indian, the Filipino, or other. Indeed, one of the arguments I make in this book, Ravi, is that the Indian diaspora will be far larger than the Chinese diaspora in the next 10, 20, 30 years. And to my knowledge, Ravi, I'm the first person to make this case, even though it's a fairly linear and obvious statement, which is to say that because India is much younger than China, Indians have a higher propensity to leave India than Chinese do China. The Chinese diaspora is concentrated in the Asia Pacific, whereas the Indian diaspora is truly global. The share of foreign professionals in the OECD countries, meaning skilled professional migrants, already Indians are more than one million more in that overall number than Chinese are. In other words, about 3.5 million Indians as skilled migrant workers in OECD countries versus only 2 million Chinese. And the trend entirely favors Indians over Chinese because many Chinese are going back home, whereas more and more Indians are leaving India. And that has a lot to do with politics, of course, and geopolitics, no less, because, of course, there is a growing suspicion of China and, and, and the Chinese nationals around the world, whereas Indians are welcome everywhere and tend to be able to speak English, to assimilate, and have studied IT and medicine, which are the two areas of the largest uh, labor shortages in the Western world. So you can fully expect, as I title this chapter in the book, the future is brown. The future will be very, very, very brown, Ravi. Um, and I suppose it's almost a humorous thing coming from me because I live that story of being an, an Indian emigrant. Uh, I've moved around the world. But I see basically myself everywhere because it's my parents' generation and it's myself and it's my own children and, and, and everyone who is like us, which is literally a billion plus people. And the final factor in all of this, of course, Ravi, is climate change. Uh, India and South Asia more broadly is horrifically more climate stressed than uh, greater China. And this is just a, a, a sort of, you know, a, a climatological fact that we have to reckon with. And this is a, both a tragedy and an opportunity in terms of how and where South Asians in particular will relocate to. But what I have studied is just this, you know, looking at Southeast Asian populations spreading around and serving the labor forces of other countries in Southeast Asia. China now trying to absorb Southeast Asian peoples that it needs to fulfill to, to meet its labor shortages, especially in nursing. Um, and, and, you know, Russia trying to import Indian farmers. Japan, of course, I devote a whole chapter to Japan in the book. Little, you know, little do people realize that there are 3 million non-Japanese people living in Japan, which is, of course, the largest number ever in the 7,000-year recorded history of Japan. There have never been 3 million non-Japanese people. And it's remarkable 
how Japan is trying to adapt to this reality. And we don't think of Japan in that way. We think of Japan as being so insular and a Galapagos culture. But in fact, they're trying very hard to absorb them. And of course, Australia is traditionally a big winner in terms of attracting Asian migrants and so on. So Asians will continue to circulate in and around Asia in huge numbers and internationally as well. Right. But, uh, you know, you brought up the question of young people and uh, the futures and the youth. And uh, let's talk about a society that you just mentioned, Japan, uh, where, as you know, uh, the sales of adult diapers have been outstripping that of children's diapers for the last five or six years, if I remember. It also happens to be one of the most monocultural societies you can find. And uh, it came as a surprise to me to read the other day that in, in this country that there are 254,000 Muslims who call Japan home. And uh, you make this interesting point that in the 70s onwards, uh, the Japanese made a concerted effort to move outwards. But today's Japanese young are quite content to stay at home. And there's that interesting uh, bit of information about all these homes that are lying empty and possibly unclaimed uh, in Japan and, you know, just waiting for somebody to move into. And by the looks of it, it's going to get worse. So I get your point that this is one society that needs more people through immigration. But yet, uh, three years ago, I was in Japan, and uh, there's this big debate in the Diet on uh, opening up immigration, and it was so heated that it went into the early hours of the morning. What does that tell you? I'm not at all surprised that there was a heated debate for all of the cultural and historical and political reasons that you cite. I'm not in any way characterizing this as a frictionless process. I am characterizing it very bluntly as a demographic and economic necessity. And the fact is, no matter how heated and emotional one country's debates may be, the same applies, of course, to America or Germany or Italy, uh, as it does to Japan. It doesn't change the demographic facts, Ravi, because, of course, Japan is one of the most rapidly depopulating countries in the world. It is one of the fastest aging societies in the world. It does have among the lowest fertility in the world. Those are facts. Emotions can change. Demographic facts are not changing because no no attempt, and this applies to Japan and to every other country on the planet, no attempt to increase fertility has worked in the last 20 years, and none will work. And for that, I give you a guarantee and a lot of sociological explanations in the book around demographic psychology of youth. So Japan has no choice. And indeed, you mentioned the vacant housing stock. Japan does have per capita in its housing market the highest vacant housing stock in the world. Uh, alongside Spain and America, by the way, I might add. And of course, all three of these countries desperately need more immigration in order to maintain their numbers. And they will not maintain their numbers without immigration. Japan, even with mass inward migration, would still be a shrinking country, Ravi. Let's be absolutely clear. And what you now, here's the other important point let's focus less on what people say. Let's focus less on the signals and the emotions and the tears in parliaments and in op-ed pages. And let's focus only, Ravi, only on actions. Let's look only at what they've actually done rather than what right-wing statements um, or xenophobic statements one politician or the other might make at any given time. And then, Ravi, let's objectively assess. And what do we see? Again, the fact is that no matter how many people or politicians may oppose it, how did those three million foreigners get to Japan? It is an island. It is an island. They did not swim there. They were allowed in. 
this government let them in. Every previous government has let them in. And every subsequent government is letting them in. Not only are they letting them in, they are rolling out the red carpet, right? So if you're a Filipino nurse, then soon for Indonesian nurses, Indian construction workers, Bangladeshi construction workers, and you mentioned the 254,000 Muslims. I give the example of the Bangladeshi gentleman who uh, has been lobbying for a larger Muslim cemetery in the country of Japan. Because people have come and they have stayed and they've been allowed to stay. And again, what are they doing? Not what they're saying. What are they doing? Well, they're making it easier for chain migration now into Japan. The last country on the planet Earth that you would ever imagine would say, yes, we're going to enable chain migration. Yes, we're going to give more extensive rights and a certain guarantee of residency to foreign workers who have been here for five years. These kinds of measures. And soon, Ravi, here's the interesting one. Soon, all of those schemes that subsidize Japanese people to go and occupy those rural homes and to refurbish them so that you can kind of replenish the, the population of the countryside and of villages and towns, those schemes will soon apply to pretty much anyone in the world who's willing to invest a little bit of capital, not just to Japanese. So let's always look at actions and let's apply the same logic to America, to Canada, to Germany, to Italy, to every country, to Britain after Brexit. And Ravi, here's what you'll see as I document country by country by country in the book. The words tell you one story and the actions tell you a profound story of continuous, relentless mass migrations around the world. This podcast is available on our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us. And now back to our podcast episode. What about Singapore? We've been generally open to immigration and the government has said that will not change. But as you know, uh, you live here. There seems to have been a bit of a slowdown lately, if not a pause. And what lessons for Singapore emerge from your book? Today's Business Times, uh, I was reading and it talks about a talent crunch that's uh, stunting the potential for startups in cybersecurity, for instance. It is ironic that, you know, sort of some of the areas where we most want to invest and grow and innovate in the economy, you know, we face shortages uh, because of the talent crunch. And basically, there's just a constant adjustment process in sophisticated, you know, and diversified economies like Singapore that are rightly cautious about who embrace immigration on the one hand, but want to tinker and, and tailor it and get it exactly right. Sort of, you know, building the plane while flying it, so to speak, there's going to be lags in the adjustment process. So, you know, a shortage of labor actually in many uh, sort of in, on many rungs of the ladder uh, exists in Singapore. And, you know, if food and beverage and hospitality also need low skilled, uh, semi skilled workers from abroad and have shortages. So hotels across Singapore don't have enough workers. Restaurants don't have enough waiters. You know, there, there aren't enough uh, cleaning crews and so forth to meet demand. And then, of course, there's the high end that you're talking about in terms of IT. Now, we rightly want to maintain very low unemployment. We rightly want companies to, uh, you know, sort of hire Singaporeans first if they are skilled and appropriate to the task. And we obviously also want to be, uh, you know, attuned to political and, and sort of, I should say, uh, you know, social and demographic and cultural sensitivities. That's a lot to juggle. And population policy, demographic policy, immigration policy, unfortunately, is a very complex undertaking, you know, and very few countries ever get it right. Uh, you know, you know, sort of with a very, very long runway. So we are in one of those phases of adjustment right now. And we have been for more than a decade, really, ever since um, 
that kind of seminal or watershed, you might say, election of, uh, you know, 2011 and the, the sort of precursor to that in terms of shifting sentiment. And I think, you know, we've had a hard time being absolutely clear and transparent in a long term way about, you know, exactly what our policy will be, but rather choosing to, to tinker. Now, there has been some very constructive tinkering. Ten years ago, you did not have a tech pass and an entrepreneur pass and an investment pass and all of these other kinds of passes and schemes that many people are taking advantage of. So I do know many young people who have arrived in this country very seamlessly uh, uh, as entrepreneurs and technologists. So clearly it is certainly doable. Um, and I would like to see us actually brand ourselves and advertise that even better and even more robustly and vigorously. Because again, Ravi, you know, the, the kind of punchline of this book is it's a war for young talent in a demographically deflating world. And we must do everything in our power in a bare, not, this is every bit as serious as any geopolitical dynamic and military maneuver going on right now is are you attracting young people? You and I began this conversation by focusing on that. In geopolitics, especially in 19th century classical geopolitics, collecting people is collecting power. And one of the things I say in this book is that actually it's still true today. It's true more than ever. Collecting people is collecting power. So when we're in an environment where last year the Singapore population actually shrunk, it actually shrunk, and we're already one of the smallest countries in the world, we obviously want to do something about that. Property markets are a very important part of our economy, and we have plenty of vacant uh, you know, condos all over the island right now. And we do need those young workers in tech and other areas. So as much as we want Singaporeans to do these things, there are not enough. As much as we would want uh, companies to potentially, for lower value kinds of jobs, offshore it and do it in Indonesia or elsewhere, they're still not enough. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do believe, Ravi, though, I think we will get it right. I really do. I just wish we would make these adjustments faster and that we would be very aggressive in the war for talent. Parag, could I talk about another part of Asia, West Asia, or the Middle East, as some people call it? The Middle Eastern model of immigration seems to be one of transient immigrants in the sense that you never belong, even if you've been a resident there for decades. And citizenship does not come easy. Do you think that this might be one way to do it? Or do you think that integrating these immigrants into society is essential as well? Well, there are there is still a two-tiered or many-tiered structure, quite frankly, here in Singapore as well as in the Gulf countries. And we really represent two hubs in the world where there is a semi-permanent migrant labor class. And within that class, you have shifting people rotating in and out, depending on the nature of the work, whether it's foreign domestic workers in the, in the uh, sort of domestic uh, home care or you know, related industries like you know, maids and cooks and cleaners and that kind of thing, and of course, construction workers. And so you know, we have a, quite simply a different approach than other countries do. But I think that a fair number of countries will wind up in similar situations, depending on their capacity for infrastructure investment, their social needs, and this kind of thing. So I actually think that we are harbingers of what is to come. 
in a number of ways, not only that people will come and go depending on how, you know, or to what extent they're needed in the economy, even without guarantees of permanent residency, but who says that they want to become permanent residents, Ravi? This is one of the most expensive cities on the planet to live in. And, you know, if your family is far away, you're not here with the expectation that you are going to go from construction worker to corporate executive and bring your next 10 relatives with you. So these theoretical assumptions about what constitutes, uh, you know, sort of, um, legitimate or acceptable kind of migration system. Simply, I, I don't accept, you know, foreign characterizations. Every country is truly unique. And I've now studied every country in the world that is gaining in population. And I don't see one model. So therefore, I, I cannot accept that someone would try to impose, you know, a model on us. And the same, of course, applies very much to the Gulf countries, because you certainly don't expect what were 50 years ago, Arab Bedouin societies to simply open up to mass immigration and start printing uh, passports for people who don't belong to their tribe, so to speak. And yet, and yet that's precisely what the United Arab Emirates has started to do, right, uh, over the last several years. Not only are they giving more citizenships, Emirati citizenship in this case, which is a fairly powerful passport with a lot of visa-free access to many Arabs of all other nationalities, um, they've started to do so to South Asians as well, who have spent enough time in the country to be considered not just stakeholders, but contributors. And the fact is that today, right now, an Indian national who has lived in the UAE long enough can, in fact, go through a legal process and attempt to acquire, not attempt to acquire, can formally apply in uh, for citizenship of the United Arab Emirates. And that's not something you or I would have even dreamt could be possible as recently as five years ago. So again, every country is unique. And there are still European countries that, of course, only offer citizenship via birthright or, you know, some amount of some degree of, um, of, uh, of course, uh, you know, sort of ethnic lineage. Uh, so I would say if you want to be critical of our immigration policy or Emirati immigration policy, whoever you are, wherever you're from, please go look at Luxembourg before you start criticizing the United Arab Emirates, because God knows there is a hell of a lot more foreigners in the United Arab Emirates than there are in Luxembourg. And the UAE is, in fact, the single most diluted country racially on the planet Earth. Uh, obviously, for a wide variety of uh, geographical and, and historical reasons, but no country in the world is 91, 92 percent foreign as they are. So I think we have to treat these cases one by one and look at how they're improving according to their circumstances. Parag, uh, since you bring up the UAE and you live there yourself, there is this line in your book about Dubai, which, as you know, took uh, many a uh, development lesson from Singapore. And the line I'm referring to is where you mentioned that there are 35 million companies in the world that are location-independent. And Dubai wants a slice of that action. What exactly is Dubai doing to grab that slice of the pie? And is there something Singapore can learn from that example? Well, first of all, it's you know again a remarkable situation. We we in a in a world increasingly where cities drive the agenda. Singapore and Dubai are two very prominent city states, if you will. We we are certainly you know far more influential in the world. Uh, than Dubai, but but as a country, you know, the United Arab Emirates would be an equivalent. There, the GDP of the United Arab Emirates is quite similar to that of Dubai, uh, is that that of uh, of Singapore, but they have twice the population as Singapore does. So, you know, of course, we remain and and are a world leading financial center with trillions of dollars of assets under management and proximate to the largest pools of assets in the world. Whereas the United Arab Emirates is a, you know, sort of um, uh, also, you know, nation to country, but in a very volatile region 
whose economy and whose access to capital you would still measure in the billions, not the trillions. So, you know, as much as I am a part of this new Silk Road relationship between Singapore and Dubai, it's one that I personally nurture and spend a lot of time in my business relationships are, are focused on that partially. I don't think that we face sort of, you know, great threats, if you will, you know, ultimately from, from that. If anything, as I've long argued, in fact, um, the rise of cities reinforces the rise of cities because cities view each other sometimes as competitors, but mostly as collaborators, and that it follows Metcalfe's law by which the value of the network increases as the network, as the node number of nodes in the network does. So the rise of Dubai is good for Singapore in many ways. Um, but yes, they've copied us. And they continue to copy us very explicitly. And I encourage that. So again, from the tiered residency and migration schemes to the futurism uh, that, that is a methodology and governance and so forth. So I'm not sure that we will necessarily learn. I mean, they can be much looser on regulatory issues than we can. Uh, and therefore, they can say, yes, we will be the fintech sandbox and crypto sandbox and drone sandbox and biotech sandbox. But and, and that will, you know, there'll be some wins there. It's not going to be sort of a loss for Singapore per se. So I think that that's just great to have more dynamic cities uh, right now. But but what it fundamentally comes down to, again, just to emphasize the point, it's so important for everyone in Singapore and elsewhere to, to get this. It's about the war for young talent. They have a golden visa. It's very transparently and boldly telegraphed around the world. No matter what nationality you are, if you're a young person who's not a criminal, come and live in Dubai. Come spend money here. Come rent our Airbnbs. You know, come eat in our cafes and restaurants. Come start your company here. Put your company on the blockchain. You know, we'll start to do a decentralized, uh, you know, registration of these things, things. We will digitize and escrow your certifications and assets. They're doing all kinds of novel things in this regard. And I do view those as good things. I do view those as very positive things. I and mean, when you go to Dubai, as I have for, you know, obviously more than 40 years, um, you've never seen just a thrive, such a, it's never, you've never seen it so thriving with young people. I was there last week and it was phenomenally energizing to see so many young people everywhere in the city. And they want to stay because they want to be in a thriving young place. Having young people begets attracting more young people. And that's what we see in this world of digital nomads. Ravi, before the pandemic, there were two countries that had digital nomad visa schemes. Today, there are 75 countries that have them. So it is, again, a war for young talent. And Dubai is doing a phenomenal job. And we're doing a great job, too. But we can also do even better. Parag, I agree with you when you say that young globalists are far less fearful of immigrants and that the elderly xenophobes are the ones uh, uh, that are headed for the great exit in the sky. But uh, the elderly do vote. And governments have to plan for that and provide for that. What do you say to that? Well, there's a number of answers. The first is that governments have a responsibility to think about the demographic health of their society and to plan their infrastructure investment and their fiscal policy and their immigration policy accordingly. So if there is a stratum of British voters and American voters and German voters who are, again, very justifiably concerned about the dilution of their culture or a growing sense of cultural and even material or physical insecurity, I am absolutely sensitive to this. I am not as ageist as it sounds. If anything, I'm the first person, at least that I'm aware of, I, I go to far-right voters in Germany 
And I say to them, why are you doing this? Why are you so anti-immigrant? Do you realize that it is your own parents who will die alone? I have said those words precisely to American and German far-right parties and individuals. I've said, why do you want your, your own aunts and uncles and parents to die a lonely death without any kind of caregiver? Because you're not taking care of them. You have moved from Dresden to Berlin or Hamburg or to London. You're not there for your own elderly. And of course, these are the same societies where old people do die alone. And that's not something that fortunately happens in Singapore, because we do have a robust system of care uh, for, the, for, the, for the elderly, and we do help them relocate to hospices, and we have an abundance of labor in those areas. So I think that you know, it's not about being uh, ages, it's actually being sensitive to demographic policy. And a government has to say, yes, older people have their concerns, but who is going to pay for their own retirement? Who are going to be the taxpayers, if not young, industrious workers? Who's going to rent the, the, the housing and buy the homes in our country? And if you are not thinking about those things and simply being politically responsive to populist and xenophobic forces, you are pursuing a very self-destructive path for your country. So yes, democratic sentiment is important, but as we know very well here in Singapore, it isn't everything right? You don't expect Democratic voters focused on the here and now to make the, to, to have 15, 20-year plans around climate change and demographics because they don't, they can't, they're not competent. And even if they were competent, it doesn't mean that they, that their sentiment is going to clearly telegraph a mandate and a solution to the problem. And so it's incumbent on the, and, and, you know, let's, let's take the one country we all know very well that's learning this lesson every single minute that we speak the hard way. And that is Great Britain. That is the country that shot itself in the foot with Brexit and that, uh, of course, was caught off guard with the pandemic. Uh, look at the excess mortality. Look at the number of people who died, who didn't have to die because they have 50,000 fewer nurses in NHS than they need to. This is a laughing matter only for Boris Johnson, Ravi. 100,000 truckers that they don't have. So food and fuel are not being delivered. So I say very simply, very bluntly, Ravi, you can learn the lesson the easy way or the hard way. The easy way is Canada, a country that says, let's have foresight. We know we need young people. We know we need to diversify our economy. We know there's a war for talent. Let's go all out and race and compete against America uh, and bring in 400,000 new permanent residents every single year, which in some years is a similar number to the United States, but with one-tenth the population. And we are not gonna, we're not going to, we have a political consensus about it. It's a world-leading democracy, right? Justin Trudeau just got reelected. There was not a strong anti-immigrant sentiment in Canada because everyone realizes they're educated to know it's good for their country. Or you can learn the hard way, and that's America and Britain. And they're not representative of the world, Ravi. They're representative of what, of, of the disaster that you can inflict on your own country and your own economy and your own society if you don't take immigration as a strategic national priority. Prague, I'd like to close with uh, a final question on uh, immigration, and that is the importation of outside values and loyalties. Some governments, as you know, Australia for one and Singapore lately are taking measures to restrict foreign interference in domestic matters. Can societies not be affected when the immigrant is physically present but has his loyalties elsewhere? 
I think that loyalties can be multiple. Loyalties can be divided. Loyalties can compete with each other. Loyalty is layered. And I, I have a discourse on this, of course, in the book. And I believe that identity, simply put, is additive, not substitutive. My own identity is, of course, a case in point. An Indian, an American, a Singaporean. I identify with lots of places and I'm enriched as a result of it. So we have to view identity as additive and not try to deny people uh, the, the benefits and the fruits and the sort of uh, the comfort that comes from their heritage and instead view it as something that can enrich us in many ways. Of course, it does enrich Singapore in daily life constantly, being literally one of the most, one of the handful of the most diverse societies on the planet and long shall we remain that way. But when it comes to politics, uh, Ravi, I actually uh, would take a, a fairly nationalist position and that might surprise people. But we're a country where you cannot divide your citizenship and where national service is very important, and where due to not only our vulnerabilities, but also our sense that we want to instill uh, you know, a pride in being Singaporean, that uh, you cannot have divided political loyalties by no means. And I think that's actually very, very intelligent. And you don't want to go down the road of having the kinds of scandals that you have in Australia or Britain, where anyone can pay to play and literally undermine the national, uh, you know, sort of strategic interests of a country uh, through uh, this kind of system. Now, I do think that dual citizenship is probably uh, a good idea, actually, and should be allowed in, in many cases. But that's different from allowing, uh, you know, foreign penetration into your politics. So what Australia is now doing to root this out is good. What Singapore is doing to root this out is good, and Canada as well, because at the end of the day, we are sovereign nations. Now, again, this may surprise people. May, people may think that I'm some kind of uh, utopian cosmopolitan. In some respects, I might be in the sense that I want to see a melting pot global culture, uh, but that's culture. But of course, I'm a political realist at the same time. So I think that there, there is a middle ground, however, and some of, one of the ways in which Singapore is far less affected by this than others is because of national service and because of the one one passport kind of uh, uh, policy. And uh, in that sense, uh, with, with some nuances and some adjustments and some corrections and adaptations that will happen along the way, I think Singapore is certainly handling this well. Barakana, it's been a pleasure chatting with you and thank you for your insights. Good luck with the book. Thank you, Ravi. Such a pleasure. The Asian Insider Podcast channel is also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Like us and rate us.